Blue Rose Film Podcast, a show dedicated to celebrating the ongoing mystery and dream that is cinema, and tracing film history through the decades via the films that have meant the most to me. My name is Jonty Cornford, and I'm a writer, editor, composer, music producer, and a lover of films. This week on the show, we're looking at another master of the form, Alfred Hitchcock. There are any number of Hitchcock films that we could talk about on this show, and I'm sure that I don't need to tell you just how important a filmmaker Hitchcock is in the history of cinema. But there's one in particular that remains his most enigmatic, disturbing, and rewatchable, in my opinion. It is, for my money, the pinnacle of Hitchcock's collaborations with screen legend Jimmy Stewart, and in a lot of ways is a crystallisation of a lot of themes and ideas that Hitchcock explores over his career. Join me this week as we untangle the web that is Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. you to follow my wife. I'm afraid some harm may come to her. I'm supposed to be retired. I don't want to get mixed up in this darn thing. I have acrophobia, which gives me vertigo, and I get dizzy. Do you believe that someone out of the past, someone dead, can enter and take possession of a living being? Carlotta Valdez was what? Your wife's grandmother? Great grandmother. That explains it. Anyone could become obsessed with the past. Has this ever happened to you before? Listen, what is this? What do you want? Just want to know who you are. Does that remind you of her? thing I have to do, then I'll be free of the past. As always, let's recap the events of the film. Jimmy Stewart is Scotty, an ex-policeman who retired from the force after witnessing another officer falling to his death from a rooftop, leaving him with crippling vertigo. Scotty lives with his ex-fiance, an underwear designer called Midge, and attempts to make steps towards curing his vertigo. But Midge tells him that the only thing that will cure him could be another severe emotional shock. Gavin Elster, an acquaintance from college, asks Scotty to follow his wife, Madeline, claiming that she's been behaving strangely and that her mental state is out of the ordinary. Scotty reluctantly agrees and follows Madeline to a florist where she buys a bouquet, to the grave of Carlotta Valdez and to the Legion of Honor Art Museum where she gazes at the portrait of Carlotta, to whom she bears a number of striking similarities. He watches her enter the McKittrick Hotel, but upon investigation, she doesn't seem to be there. 
a local historian explains that Carlotta Valdez committed suicide. She had been the mistress of a wealthy married man and born his child. The otherwise childless man kept the child and cast Carlotta aside. Gavin reveals that Carlotta, who he fears is possessing Madeline, is Madeline's great-grandmother, although Madeline has no knowledge of this and does not remember the places that she's visited throughout the day. Scotty tails Madeline to Fort Point, and when she leaps into the bay, he dives in after her, rescuing her from drowning. The next day, Madeline stops to deliver a letter of gratitude for Scotty, and they decide to spend the day together. They travel to Muir Woods and Cypress Point on 17 Mile Drive, where Madeline runs down towards the ocean. Scotty grabs her, and they embrace. The following day, Madeline visits Scotty and recounts a nightmare. Scotty identifies its setting as Mission San Juan Batista, the childhood home of Carlotta. He drives her there and they express their love for each other. Madeline suddenly runs into the church and up the bell tower. Scotty, halted on the steps by his acrophobia and vertigo, hears a scream and sees Madeline plunge past the window to her death. The death is declared a suicide. Gavin does not fault Scotty, but Scotty breaks down, becomes clinically depressed, and is sent to a sanatorium, almost catatonic. Following his release, Scotty frequents the places that Madeline used to visit, often imagining that he sees her there. One day, he notices a woman on the street who reminds him of Madeline, despite her differences in appearance. Scotty follows her to her hotel room, where she identifies herself as Judy Barton from Salina, Kansas. Judy has a flashback, revealing that she was the person that Scotty knew as Madeline. She was impersonating Gavin's wife in an elaborate murder scheme. Judy drafts a letter to Scotty explaining her involvement, that Gavin deliberately took advantage of Scotty's acrophobia and vertigo to substitute his wife's freshly killed body in the apparent suicide. However, Judy rips up the letter and continues the charade because of her love for Scotty. They begin seeing each other, but Scotty remains obsessed with Madeline. He asks Judy to change her clothes and dye her hair to resemble Madeline. After Judy complies, hoping that they may finally find happiness together, he notices her wearing the necklace portrayed in Carlotta's painting. Scotty realises the truth and insists on driving Judy back again to the mission. There, he tells her that he must reenact the event that led to his madness, admitting that he now understands that Madeline and Judy are the same person, and that Judy was Gavin's mistress before being cast aside, just as Carlotta was. Scotty forces her up the bell tower and makes her admit her deceit. Scotty reaches the top, finally conquering his acrophobia. Judy confesses that Gavin paid her to impersonate a possessed Madeline. Judy begs Scotty to forgive her because she loves him. He embraces Judy, but a shadowy figure, actually a nun investigating the noise, rises from the tower's trapdoor, startling her. Judy suddenly lunges backwards and accidentally falls to her death. Scotty, bereaved once again, but cured of his fear of heights, stands on the ledge while the nun rings the mission bell.
every young film fan has to encounter Alfred Hitchcock at some point in their life. Probably more so than any other filmmaker, Hitchcock's work is almost completely unavoidable. Even if you manage to avoid his films in their entirety, the images that he created in his films transcend that of film culture, traversing over into popular memory and iconography. The image of Cary Grant being chased by the plane in North by Northwest. Jimmy Stewart looking through the viewfinder of his camera in Rear Window. Any number of moments in Psycho, whether it's the reveal of Norman Bates' mother or the infamous shower killing. So it didn't take me long to start watching Hitchcock's films as a teenager being interested in film, starting with Psycho, Rear Window, and The Birds. I was relatively familiar with Hitchcock's style of filmmaking by the time I made my way to Vertigo. I was probably about 14 or 15 when I saw it for the first time. And if I'm being completely honest, it was the first Hitchcock film that I saw and didn't immediately like. There were twisted characters in the other films of his that I'd seen, but the moral ambiguity and the incredibly disturbing subtext took me completely by surprise. It came across as chilly and impenetrable the first time I saw it, something that really surprised me given how much I had attached to Jimmy Stewart's magnetic screen presence in the past. I didn't know what to make of it, and it was just too much for my little brain to handle at that time. Not only that, but I found it was boring. I was trying my best to bypass the part of my brain that was telling me nothing was happening and so therefore I should be bored, but I just wasn't old enough, I don't think, to see the film for what it actually was. Unsurprisingly, given that this is a podcast dedicated to the films that have meant the most to me over the years, I've seen Vertigo many, many times since that first time seeing it. I actually didn't come back to it for a long time, probably not until I was an adult after seeing it for that first time. I own a box set with 14 of Hitchcock's films in it, and in making my way through more and more of them, I must have decided to revisit Vertigo at one point or another. It's often said that great films act as a prism or a mirror, and that what you get out of them greatly depends on what you bring to them. This could not be truer of my experience with Vertigo, because the second time I saw it might as well have been a completely different film. It resonated and sung to me in a way that I guess I just had to grow up and experience some life to be able to experience. I think a large part of this is to do with the way that adults view romantic relationships compared to how children perceive them. At age 14, I was not going to be able to find a way into a story about a man obsessing over a woman he knows it should be impossible to have. But as an adult, I understood, recognised and was confronted by the kind of male obsession that the film depicts. Not only that, but I was able to see this film as a sort of meta-exploration into Alfred Hitchcock himself as a filmmaker but we'll explore that idea a little later on. As I've mentioned before on this podcast, I've had the privilege of running a film club with some friends, and Vertigo was one of the very first films that I brought to that group to watch and talk about. Much like Chinatown, a film that draws heavily on the legacy and film language established by films like Vertigo, it sparked long conversation about character, form and pacing, testament to just how powerful and mysterious the film remains to this day, despite sometimes feeling at odds to how we understand thrillers to function today. I revisit it about once a year, and it hasn't lost its power on me. It continues to suck me in and work its magic on me. Exactly what that magic is and what it means is a complex question for me to answer. If only I had a long-form podcast with which I could go into great detail explaining it.
we have very briefly crossed paths with Alfred Hitchcock before on this journey through cinema, but to fully introduce ourselves to him, we have to go back in time, to a time before sound was an established part of popular filmmaking. Hitchcock was born on the 13th of August 1899 in London to parents who loved the theatre but were also incredibly strict. In Hitchcock's definitive and exhaustive interview with Francois Truffaut, he recounts being sent to the police station by his father with a note, aged about four or five. The chief of police read the note and locked him in a cell for five or ten minutes, saying, this is what we do to naughty boys. He was a well-behaved child, content to sit quietly by himself at family gatherings, not drawing attention to himself. As a result, he spent a lot of time observing other people. He was sent to school at a young age at St. Ignatius College, a Jesuit school in London, where his family's Catholic values were further instilled into him, developing a fear of being involved in anything evil, primarily because of the threat of physical punishment. From a very young age, he was interested in film, a medium that was still in its infancy in the early years of the 20th century. He would read film industry journals from the age of about 16 and studied art at the University of London, where he was given the chance to draw. Despite his family's affiliation with the theatre, Hitchcock was drawn to the cinema and was attracted to the American films of Charlie Chaplin, D.W. Griffith, Buster Keaton and Mary Pickford, to name a few. He also particularly loved the German film Destiny, directed by Fritz Lang, as well as the films of Murnau into the mid-1920s. He later would refer to Griffith's Intolerance and The Birth of a Nation as being two films that had a huge influence on him growing up. His first look into the industry of filmmaking actually came through his ability to draw, through which he was able to contribute to the intertitles or dialogue cards of some of the early Paramount pictures. He submitted some of his own work to Paramount and they hired him almost immediately. One lesson that he learnt through these early years was the power that was afforded to filmmakers after initial photography is finished to completely alter the narrative or drama of the film. A director could ask him to put together anything they wanted onto one of the intertitles, giving them the ability to completely rewrite the film. It was during this time that he got his first real look at the inside of filmmaking. He met a number of American writers and learnt how to write scripts. When there were extra scenes that needed to be shot, they would sometimes let him shoot them. He landed a job as an assistant director in the midst of some studio reshuffling on the strength of his own script, something that he wrote purely as an exercise based on a novel that he knew the rights to which were already owned by an American production company. He was working on a film called Always Tell Your Wife when its star, Seymour Hicks, got in an argument with the director and Hicks approached Hitchcock, saying, let's just you and me finish this thing by ourselves. Meanwhile, the rights to the play Woman to Woman was purchased for film, at which point Hitchcock expressed interest in writing the script. When they asked him what experience he had, he showed them the script that he had written purely as a writing exercise. Impressed, they gave him the job. At this point, he was 23, and the year was 1922. The film was directed by Graham Cutts, and as well as writing the adaptation and dialogue, Hitchcock was assistant director, art director, and worked on the production team. He performed all of these jobs on a number of other films, including White Shadows, The Passionate Adventure, The Black Guard, and The Prude's Fall. Each of these pictures would take about six weeks to make. In 1925, after filming Wrapped for The Prude's Fall, Michael Balkin approached Hitchcock and asked him if he had ever considered directing. He had never considered directing and was happy writing scripts and working in art direction, but he accepted the offer, and the result was the 1925 silent film The Pleasure Garden. 
He went on to direct eight more silent pictures, all the way up to 1929, with The Manxman, including a picture that is now entirely lost, 1926's The Mountain Eagle. His 1927 film titled The Lodger is a film that Hitchcock himself described as the first true Hitchcock film. The action of the film is set in a house and takes the point of view of a landlady wondering whether or not her new lodger is Jack the Ripper. Here we see early incarnations of things that would go on to become Hitchcock tropes, morally ambiguous lead characters, trademark suspense, and young blonde females being the victim of male-perpetrated crimes. The film industry changed forever when The Jazz Singer came out in 1927, the first feature-length film to feature audible dialogue. Hitchcock continued making silent films through to The Manxman in 1929, but in that same year he made a clean cut to sound, starting with Blackmail. From this point onwards until Vertigo in 1958 is an entire university course worth of history, film criticism and cultural analysis, so we'll jump ahead a little bit here. He made another 36 films after Blackmail before making Vertigo, ranging from everything from offbeat comedies to suspense thrillers. Some favourites of mine in this period of his filmmaking are Lifeboat, Saboteur, Rope, his remake of his own film The Man Who Knew Too Much, and Rear Window, another classic Jimmy Stewart collaboration that acts as a thematic and aesthetic precursor to the era of Hitchcock that Vertigo sits in. Which brings us up to the year of 1955, just after the release of Rear Window, Dial M for Murder, and To Catch a Thief, which were released back to back. His status as one of, if not the most popular and prolific living filmmaker was already cemented, but it was about to reach even greater heights. In 1955, a film is released over in France called Diabolique, sometimes known in English-speaking territories as The Devils or The Fiends. It's directed by Henri Georges Clouseau and is based on She Who Was No More, a novel written by Pierre Boulot and Thomas Narsajak. After his previous film, The Wages of Fear, Clouseau optioned the rights to the screenplay. Alfred Hitchcock had planned to make this film were he able to attain the rights, and some say that he missed out on purchasing the rights from the authors by a mere couple of hours. Diabolique would go on to be critically acclaimed, as well as likened to the style of films Hitchcock himself was popularising in the 1950s. Also in 1955, Hitchcock began hosting the television program Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which ran for 10 years. With his droll delivery, gallows humour and iconic image, the series made Hitchcock a celebrity. In the summer of 1957, while filming an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Hitchcock was admitted to hospital for hernia and gallstones and had to have his gallbladder removed. The surgery was successful, and while he recovered, he began working on his next film. Despite Hitchcock's apparent ignorance to this fact, the authors of Diabolique had gotten wind of the fact that he wanted to attain the rights to a film adaptation, and so had written a number of novels on the strength of that theory in anticipation of Hitchcock wanting material for his next project. One of these novels was From Among the Dead, which Paramount immediately bought for Hitchcock. Accounts of exactly if and how this happened vary, and the authors later denied that this novel or any other was written with the specific purpose of being adapted for Hitchcock, but Paramount bought the rights to the novel so swiftly that the English translation hadn't even been printed yet. In Truffaut's famous interview, he asked Hitchcock what specifically appealed to him about the story. He responded, I was intrigued by the hero's attempts to recreate the image of a dead woman through another one who's still alive. There were three screenwriters involved in the writing of Vertigo. Hitchcock originally hired playwright Maxwell Anderson to write a screenplay, but rejected his work. 
According to Charles Barr in his monograph dedicated to Vertigo, Anderson was the oldest at 68 of the three writers involved, the most celebrated for his stage work and the least committed to cinema, though he had a joint script credit for Hitchcock's preceding film, The Wrong Man. He worked on adapting the novel during Hitchcock's absence abroad and submitted a treatment in September of 1956. A second version written by Alec Copel again left the director dissatisfied. The final script was written by Samuel A. Taylor, from notes written by Hitchcock. Taylor was recommended to Hitchcock due to his knowledge of San Francisco. Among Taylor's creations was the character of Midge. Taylor attempted to take sole credit for the screenplay, but Copel protested to the Screenwriters Guild, which determined that both writers were entitled to a credit, but to leave Anderson out of the film writing credits. Here's more from Hitchcock himself, again from the Truffaut interview, about the changes that the story went through in the process of being adapted from the novel to the screen. As you know, the story is divided into two parts. The first part goes up to Madeline's death, where she falls from the steeple, and the second part opens with the hero's meeting with Judy, a brunette who looks just like Madeline. In the book, it's at the beginning of that second part that the hero meets Judy and tries to get her to look like Madeline, and it's only at the very end that both he and the reader discover that Madeline and Judy are one and the same girl. That's the final surprise twist. In the screenplay, we used a different approach. At the beginning of the second part, when Stuart meets the brunette, the truth about Judy's identity is disclosed, but only to the viewer. Though Stuart isn't aware of it yet, the viewers already know that Judy isn't just a girl who looks like Madeline, but that she is Madeline. Everyone around me was against this change. They all felt that the revelation should be saved for the end of the picture. I put myself in the place of a child whose mother is telling him a story. When there's a pause in her narration, the child always asks, what comes next? Well, I felt that the second part of the novel was written as if nothing comes next, whereas in my formula, the little boy, knowing that Madeline and Judy are the same person, would then ask, and Stuart doesn't know, does he? What will he do when he finds out? This speaks to something that is at the heart of Hitchcock's style of filmmaking, surprise versus suspense. His film Rope is often used as the perfect case study in understanding the difference between surprise and suspense. If that film were told from the point of view of Jimmy Stewart's character, the reveal of a body being concealed by two of the other attendees of the party would be surprising and would certainly reward repeated viewing. But by placing us with the two perpetrators and seeing them hide the body in the first place, every change in blocking, every step made by a character, every word, is another step towards disaster for these two characters. This is the difference between surprise and suspense. It's an unseen gun going off suddenly, versus knowing that the gun is probably going to go off at some point, but not knowing where or when. It's the bag in a quiet place accidentally snagging on the exposed nail, planting the idea in the audience that someone is stepping on that nail at some point in the film. We just don't know when. He would of course subvert this trope two years later to spectacular effect in Psycho. Vera Miles, who was under personal contract with Hitchcock and had appeared in both his television show and the film The Wrong Man, was originally booked to play the dual role of Madeline and Judy. She had modelled for an early version of the painting in the film and had prepared her wardrobe, but became pregnant before shooting was scheduled to start. In Hitchcock's words, he lost interest in her after that and couldn't get the rhythm going with her again. 
Hitchcock refused to postpone shooting and cast Kim Novak as the female lead instead. By the time Novak had delayed prior film commitments and a vacation promised by Columbia Pictures, the studio that held her contract, Miles had given birth and was available for the film. But Hitchcock proceeded with Kim Novak. Columbia head Harry Conn agreed to lend Novak to Vertigo if Stewart would agree to co-star with Novak in Bell, Book and Candle, a Columbia production released in December of 1958. Kim Novak elevates the material in Vertigo with her presence just as much as an ageing Jimmy Stewart, even more so, I would argue. But Hitchcock wasn't thrilled with her presence both on set and in the final film. Here's Truffaut and Hitchcock again in their famous interview. Truffaut starts... I take it from some of your interviews that you weren't too happy with Kim Novak, but I thought that she was perfect for the picture. There was a passive, animal quality about her that was exactly right for the part. Hitchcock responds, Miss Novak arrived on set with all sort of preconceived notions that I couldn't possibly go along with. You know, I don't like to argue with the performer on set. There's no reason to bring the electrician into our troubles. Here's Kim Novak herself on the experience of working with Hitchcock on Vertigo. I think the role appealed to me because it was the resistance of Judy, who was, in a sense, me, trying to become the Hollywood person, trying to be Madeline, needing to be loved and willing to be made over. She becomes blonde and then she wears it down and she says, no, it's not quite right. And then she puts it up. Finally, at the end, is, is this it? Is it, you know, will you, if, if I become her, will you love me? Do you know? You know, and I, I remember when I played it, it, it was, I mean, I felt absolutely stripped naked. Do you know? I felt so vulnerable. He knew exactly what he wanted. The facade was everything to him. If, if the hair was off in any way, he was calling the hairdress over constantly, fix that. In the back, the bun is twisted wrong. And he would notice that. He was uh, obsessed with it, I would say. Obsessed with the look. It was as if he was Jimmy Stewart being making sure that she was dressed exactly the way Madeline was. He was playing the part of Jimmy Stewart. Which brings us not only to some of the troublesome history Hitchcock had with women in his films, but also the way in which Vertigo is strangely and perhaps ironically transparent and reflexive in his treatment of femininity. Hitchcock's portrayal of women has been the subject of much scholarly debate. The Guardian posted a piece in 2010 that says there's the vamp, the tramp, the snitch, the witch, the slink, the double-crosser, and best of all, the demon mum. Don't worry, they all get punished in the end. In a widely cited essay in 1975, Laura Mulvey introduced the idea of the male gaze. The view of the spectator in Hitchcock's films, she argued, is that of the heterosexual male protagonist. Roger Ebert wrote in 1996, the female characters in his films reflected the same qualities over and over again. They were blonde, they were icy, and they were remote. They were imprisoned in costumes that subtly combined fashion with fetishism. They mesmerised the men who often had physical or psychological handicaps. Sooner or later, every Hitchcock woman was humiliated. The victims in The Lodger are all blondes. In The 39 Steps, Madeline Carroll is put in handcuffs. Ingrid Bergman, whom Hitchcock directed three times in Spellbound, Notorious and Under Capricorn, is dark blonde. In Rear Window, Lisa, played by Grace Kelly, risks her life by breaking into Lars Thorwald's apartment. 
In To Catch a Thief, Francie, also played by Kelly, offers to help a man she believes is a burglar. In Vertigo and North by Northwest, respectively, Kim Novak and Eva Marie Saint play the blonde heroines. In Psycho, Janet Leigh's character steals $40,000 and is murdered by Norman Bates, a reclusive psychopath. Tippi Hedren, a blonde, appears to be the focus of the attacks in The Birds and was subjected to real emotional and physical abuse on set for both The Birds and for Marnie. In Topaz, French actresses Danny Robin as Stafford's wife and Claude Jade as Stafford's daughter are blonde heroines. Hitchcock's last blonde heroine was Barbara Harris as a phony psychic turned amateur sleuth in Family Plot, his final film. In the same film, the diamond smuggler, played by Karen Black, wears a long blonde wig in several scenes. His films often feature characters struggling with their relationships with their mothers, such as Norman Bates in Psycho. In North by Northwest, Roger Thornhill, played by Cary Grant, is an innocent man ridiculed by his mother for insisting that shadowy, murderous men are after him. In The Birds, the Rod Taylor character, an innocent man, finds his world under attack by vicious birds and struggles to free himself from a clinging mother, played by Jessica Tandy. The killer in Frenzy has a loathing of women but idolises his mother. The villain Bruno in Strangers on a Train hates his father but has an incredibly close relationship with his mother, played by Marion Lorne. Sebastian, played by Claude Rains in Notorious, has a clearly conflicting relationship with his mother, who is rightly suspicious of his new bride, Alicia Huberman, played by Ingrid Bergman. Here's filmmaker David Fincher on this element of Hitchcock's films. If you think that you can hide what your interests are, what your, what your prurient interests are, what your noble interests are, what your fascinations are, if you think you can hide that in your work as a, as a film director, you're nuts, you know? And I think that he was one of the first guys who said, I'm gonna go with it. <laughs> I'm just gonna, I'm gonna be, I gotta be me. In the case of his best work, there's a more direct umbilicus to his subconscious. Certainly, I think that's true of Vertigo. The sex psychological side Le, is that you have a man creating a sex image that he can't go to bed with her until he's got her back to the thing he wants to go to bed with. Should be back from your face and pinned at the neck. I told her that. I told you that. We tried it. Or metaphorically indulged in a form of necrophilia. That's what it really was. I've always felt that the most interesting view of Vertigo would be her story. The color of your hair. Please, it can't matter to you. And it's almost more honest than the guy's point of view. If, if I let you change me, will that do it? I guess help. taking Scotty's point of view was... Will you love me? Hitchcock's point of view. Hitchcock reveals a lot of himself in the Truffaut interview, especially when it comes to this topic. Here's Hitchcock again in that interview. You'll remember that Judy resisted the idea of being made to look like Madeline. 
In the book, she was simply reluctant to change her appearance with no justification for her attitude. Whereas in the film, the girl's reason for fighting off the changes is that she would eventually be unmasked. To put it plainly, the man wants to go to bed with a woman who's dead. He's indulging in a form of necrophilia. Cinematically, all of Stewart's efforts to recreate the dead woman are shown in such a way that he seems to be trying to undress her instead of the other way around. What I liked best is when the girl came back after having her hair dyed blonde. Stuart is disappointed because she hasn't put her hair up in a bun. What this really means is that the girl has almost stripped but won't take her knickers off. When he insists, she says alright and goes into the bathroom while he waits outside. What Stuart is really waiting for is for the woman to emerge totally naked this time and ready for love. This is the sort of sexual thematic subtext that went straight over my head the first time I saw this film and then suddenly hit me like a ton of bricks when revisiting it. It would be easy for a film like this to become needlessly leering or exploitative too were it in the wrong hands. A little while back we looked at Roman Polanski and Chinatown, a film that I think is much more problematic, not in the subject matter it tackles, but rather in the way that that subject matter is handled. Jack Nicholson's character of Giddies is firmly the hero of the story and unambiguously depicted as such in Chinatown, whereas it isn't that straightforward in Vertigo. The film begins by painting Stuart to be the sort of film noir hero that we are very used to seeing in film, but by the halfway mark of the film he has failed dismally to achieve any of the goals that that hero would normally be expected to achieve. He doesn't get the girl, he fails to protect her, and she dies as a result. Where do you take that character after they have lost everything? That is the great tragedy at the heart of Vertigo. Scotty descends further and further into depravity and perversity simply because he is unable to fill the hole in his life left by unimaginable loss. Like all great films, the technique and artistry of the filmmaking serves the thematic material. It's one thing to have a mastery over form and function, but to be able to wield that in service of something that will move an audience is something else entirely. A great example of this is the extended sequence in the first half of the film where Scotty follows Madeline, first on the road and then on foot. The sequence is deliberately methodical and seemingly aimless at first. What's Scotty actually looking for? Where's Madeline going? What about her is activating this totally irrational obsession in Scotty? The geography of the scene is fascinating, and if you look carefully, you can track the path that he drives on a map of San Francisco, revealing that he is driving in circles. Ominously, though, throughout the entire scene, Scotty is presented as driving downhill in a sort of spiral, a subconscious and somewhat subliminal trick being played on the audience by Hitchcock, adding to a growing sense that Scotty really has no idea what it is that he's getting himself into, helpless to stop the swirling down the spiral into his own reckoning. Here's filmmaker Martin Scorsese on this sequence in the film. Uh, on a big screen at the Capitol Theatre in New York, my friends who were 15 years old, um, and even though the film was not received well at the time, we, we responded to the film very strongly. Didn't know why. Couldn't really tell why. Couldn't tell what was happening. But we really went with the picture and remembered it. And it took years for us to see it again. But there's a sequence in that film where he's just following, Jimmy Stewart's following um, uh, Kim Novak in her car. And it's just shot after shot him driving, it's how he's composed in the center of the frame, how she's composed, it's the, it's the uh, serenity of the camera positions 
uh, I, I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that just to be a contraire, you know, to some of the murder scenes in Psycho and that sort of thing. Yeah, I like, I like watching those. And uh, the actual uh, shower scene in Psycho I use as a template for some of the, uh, uh, for one of the big moments in Raging Bull for, for a fight scene, as a template. But um, I'm finding that over the years, um, the scenes that stay with me are the, the seemingly quieter scenes, the scenes where things, where it appears that not much is happening with the Hitchcock film. Uh, and it's all happening there in him, the obsession of following her everywhere she goes with that car. That's a beautiful sequence. And of course, Bernard Herrmann's music doesn't hurt it. <laughs> Again, in Truffaut's interview, here's Hitchcock on the way that he went about communicating that obsession using the vocabulary of cinema. At the beginning of the picture, when James Stewart follows Madeline to a cemetery, we gave her a dreamlike, mysterious quality by shooting through a fog filter. That gave us a green effect, like fog over the brilliant sunshine. Then, later on, when Stuart first meets Judy, I decided to make her live at the Empire Hotel in Post Street because it has a green neon sign flashing continually outside the window. So when the girl emerges from the bathroom, that green light gives her the same subtle, ghost-like quality. After focusing on Stuart, who's staring at her, we go back to the girl, but now we slip that soft effect away to indicate that Stuart's come back to reality. Temporarily dazed by the vision of his beloved Madeline come back from the dead, Stuart comes to his senses when he spots the locket. In a flash, he realises that Judy has been tricking him all along. This touches on another technical quality of the film that I admire greatly, which is its use of colour. 1935 is considered to be the year when colour cinema was first introduced. This is when the first full-length colour film called Becky Sharp by an American director by the name of Ruben Mamoulian was released. The colour cinema technology, Technicolor, which was used in this movie, paved the way for a new colour era in the history of cinema. However, it took another 30 years for it to become widespread. In the wake of Vertigo, the 60s finally brought a massive transition to the colour movie industry. There's no doubt that the main colour of Vertigo is green, which Hitchcock associates with his main female character. In the very first scene where Madeline appears, we can easily pick her out from the crowd because she stands out in her emerald dress, which contrasts with the red hue of the restaurant walls, red being the opposite to green on the colour spectrum. It's this association with the colour green that keeps Scotty on her trail in the following scene that we mentioned earlier. There's lots of literature that you can find about the psychology of colour and countless theories about the significance of red and green in Vertigo. To me, that stuff isn't actually particularly interesting. The thing about the use of colour in Vertigo, especially green and red, that fascinates me is the way that it evokes such a deep sense of mystery. By associating Madeline with the colour green in particular, it imbues her character with an almost mythic or archetypal importance. You simply cannot take your eyes off Kim Novak as Madeline, much in the same way as Scotty can't take his eyes off her, in large part due to the way colour is used. There's also a huge amount of attention to detail in every single frame, to the point at which every single image in the film feels composed with the same intentionality and care as a painting. The colour is a huge part of this, but beyond that, Hitchcock was incredibly hands-on and meticulous about how his frame looked before calling action. He would regularly have hair and makeup on set, fixing the tiniest detail of Kim Novak's hair, or the costume department to tighten up some minute detail. Often the cast and crew would barely even notice the difference in these changes and fixes, but such was Hitchcock's dedication to perfection and precision in his filmmaking. 
This perfectionism becomes perhaps even more apparent when you read about the processes of shooting the film both on location and on sound stages. The film was shot between September and December of 1957 in San Francisco, making great use of recognisable San Francisco landmarks, including an iconic inclusion of the Golden Gate Bridge. After 16 days of shooting on location, Hitchcock then moved production to Paramount Studios in Hollywood for a further two months of shooting. Hitchcock preferred to shoot on sets rather than on location, enjoying the freedom and the control that he could have over lighting, camera placement and his actors when compared to location filming. More often than not, what we see in the film is an exterior of a real location before cutting into an interior on a set designed and built meticulously to recreate the exact dimension, design and feel of the real location. Henry Bumstead was the man behind the design and construction of these sets, and other than the florist shop, the painting at the Palace of the Legion of Honor, and the McKittrick Hotel, every interior was built under his design, including the 70-foot-high bell tower. When you consider the extra cost, time, resources, and energy that went into recreating locations that were available to use on a soundstage at Paramount, the level of Hitchcock's obsession with control and perfection really starts to sink in. A coda to the film was also shot that showed Midge at her apartment, listening to a radio report voiced by San Francisco TV reporter Dave McKelleton, describing the pursuit of Gavin Elster across Europe. Midge switches the radio off when Scotty enters the room, and they then share a drink and look out the window in silence. Contrary to reports that this scene was filmed to meet foreign censorship needs, this tag ending had originally been demanded by Jeffrey Sherlock of the US Production Code Administration, who'd noted, it will of course be most important that the indication that Elster will be brought back for trial is sufficiently emphasised. Hitchcock finally succeeded in fending off most of Sherlock's demands, which included a toning down of most of the erotic illusions, and had the alternative ending dropped. This footage was discovered in Los Angeles in May of 1993 and was added as an alternative ending on the Laserdisc release and later on DVD and Blu-ray releases. Within 48 hours of principal photography being wrapped on the 19th of December 1957, Hitchcock left for a month-long vacation in Jamaica with his wife. Over that Christmas period, a rough cut was assembled by editor George Tomasini, which was later screened to Hitchcock in New York, where he made extensive notes on dubbing work that was required, as well as other editing notes. The majority of January of 1958 was spent by Hitchcock and Tomasini tightening the edit of the film and working with Bernard Herrmann on the score. There's a famous photo of Herrmann and Hitchcock together on set, where Herrmann apparently is fast asleep. Supposedly, Herman had come to visit the set and had caught a nap while waiting to be able to speak with Hitchcock. Hitchcock then arranged for a photo to be taken by producer Herbert Coleman before he was woken up. The score from Bernard Herman is, I think, one of the finest scores to be put to a Hitchcock film. Hitchcock had wanted Herman to study Norman O'Neill's score for J.M. Barry's 1920 play Mary Rose, and Paramount staff went to great lengths to track down the only remaining vinyl recording in England. However, it remains uncertain how much, if at all, Herman listened to the recording, but a definite influence on the score was the Liebestad from Wagner's Tristan and Isolde. The entire score was composed between January 6th and February 19th of 1958. Although Herman had intended to conduct the recording of the score, an unexpected musician strike and the need to release the film on time necessitated an overseas recording in London conducted by Muir Matheson. Partway through the recording session in early March, the London Symphony Orchestra walked out in support of the American strike, forcing Herbert Coleman to hastily arrange for the remainder of the score to be recorded in Vienna. Later, 
Herman spoke about the location choice of the film, suggesting that Hitchcock had chosen the wrong city to locate the action in the film. Bernard Herman said they should never have made it in San Francisco. It should have been left in New Orleans or in a hot, sultry climate. When I wrote the picture, I thought of that. Graphic designer Saul Bass uses spiral motifs in both the title sequence and the movie poster, emphasising what the documentary Obsessed with Vertigo calls Vertigo's psychological vortex. Bass's unconventional framing of actress Audrey Lau's facial features in the first images of the titles was indebted to Bauhaus photography. According to her 1997 Guardian interview, Kim Novak wanted to do the opening title sequence, but Harry Conn insisted Hitchcock pay full rate for the single day shooting, and so another face was chosen. Both the opening titles and the memorable dream sequence in the film are some of the earliest uses of computer-generated imagery in film, perhaps even the first ever. Because Bass insisted that the spirals be accurate and not hand-drawn, Hitchcock hired John Whitney to rig up what was actually an anti-aircraft military targeting computer to drive cell rotations, generating the spirals that we see in the film. The other groundbreaking effect that Vertigo gave us is the Vertigo effect that we see when Scotty experiences said Vertigo. Achieved by dollying the camera away from the subject while zooming in, or vice versa, it creates a distorting effect, whereby the drop down through the spiral staircases of the bell tower, for example, extends dramatically. You can see this effect replicated throughout cinema history in the wake of Vertigo, in films like Jaws, Raging Bull, Poltergeist, The Fellowship of the Ring, and even more recently, in Ryan Johnson's Knives Out, a film that partakes largely in a lot of the tropes and language developed by Hitchcock. In the case of Vertigo, it would have proven near impossible and incredibly unsafe to achieve the required dolly movement through a giant spiral staircase with pulleys and cabling, so it was achieved instead by performing the same dolly zoom horizontally through a scaled-down model of the staircase. When Vertigo was first released to the public in 1958 after premiering in San Francisco, it was a financial failure, especially when compared to Hitchcock's box office performances up until this point. It did just break even, earning $3.2 million against its roughly $2.5 million budget, but it earned significantly less than was expected of a Hitchcock film. Audiences were perhaps confused and put off by the film's complexity and relative coldness, despite the presence of both Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak. The rights to Vertigo were then passed back to Hitchcock from Paramount under the terms of his contract, becoming one of five films that were known as The Missing Hitchcocks. In 1968, Hitchcock pulled five films out of distribution. Rope, The Man Who Knew Too Much, The Trouble With Harry, Rear Window, and Vertigo. They remained unseen for years after this, until Hitchcock's death in 1980, when the rights to these films' distribution went to Hitchcock's daughter, Patricia. Universal then negotiated a deal with Patricia Hitchcock for distribution rights, with a reported $6 million price tag, at which point a series of cinema re-releases and home video releases began. In 1996, the film was given a lengthy and controversial restoration by Robert A. Harris and James C. Katz and re-released to theatres. The new print featured restored colour and newly created audio using modern sound effects mixed in DTS digital surround sound. In October 1996, the restored Vertigo premiered at the Castro Theatre in San Francisco with Kim Novak and Patricia Hitchcock in person. At this screening, the film was exhibited for the first time in DTS and 70mm, a format with a similar frame size to the VistaVision system in which it was originally shot. Significant colour correction was necessary because of the fading of the original negatives. 
In some cases, a new negative was created from the silver separation masters, but in many instances this was impossible because of differential separation shrinkage and because the 1958 separations were poorly made. Separations used three individual films, one for each of the primary colours, and in the case of Vertigo, these had shrunk in different and erratic proportions, making realignment impossible. As such, significant amounts of computer-assisted coloration was necessary. Although the results are not noticeable on viewing the film, some elements were as many as eight generations away from the original negative, in particular the entire scene in Judy's apartment, perhaps the most pivotal sequence in the entire film. When such large portions of recreation become necessary, then the danger of artistic license by the restorers becomes an issue, and the restorers receive some criticism for their recreation of colours that allegedly did not honour the director's and cinematographer's original intentions. The restoration team argued that they did research on the colours used in the original locations, cars, wardrobe and skin tones. One breakthrough moment came when the Ford Motor Company supplied a well-preserved green paint sample for a car used in the film. As we've already discussed the importance of the colour green in the film, matching a shade of green was a stroke of luck for restoration and provided a reference shade for the rest of the film. In October of 2014, a new 4K restoration was presented at the Castro Theatre in San Francisco. This version gives credit to Harris and Katz at the end of the film and thanks them for providing some previously unknown stereo soundtracks. This version also removes some of the excessive foley work that was added in the 1996 restoration. Critical reception of the film at the time of release was mixed. Variety wrote that the film showed Hitchcock's mastery, but felt that the film was too long and slow for what is basically only a psychological murder mystery. Similarly, Philip K. Schuer of the Los Angeles Times admired the scenery, but found the plot took too long to unfold, and felt that it bogs down in a maze of detail. Scholar Dan Euler says that this review sounded the tone that most popular critics would take with the film. However, the Los Angeles Examiner loved it, admiring the excitement, action, romance, glamour and the crazy offbeat love story. The New York Times film critic Bosley Crowther also gave Vertigo a positive review by explaining that the secret of the film is so clever even though it is devilishly far-fetched. Richard L. Coe of the Washington Post praised the film as a wonderful weirdy, writing that Hitchcock has even more fun than usual with trick angles, floor shots and striking use of colour. John McCartan at The New Yorker wrote that Hitchcock has never before indulged in such far-fetched nonsense. Today though, Vertigo is considered by many to be Hitchcock's masterpiece, and by some to be one of the greatest films ever made. Inside and Sound Magazine's greatest film of all time poll that they conduct with the votes of filmmakers and critics around the world, it's been at the pointy end of their polls since entering its seventh place in 1982. By 1992, it had advanced to fourth by 2002 to second, and in 2012, it overtook Orson Welles' Citizen Kane as Sight and Sound's greatest film of all time. In 2022, it's now dropped back to second place. Commenting upon the 2012 results, the magazine's editor, Nick James, said that Vertigo was the ultimate critic's film. It's a dreamlike film about people who are not sure who they are, but who are busy reconstructing themselves and each other to fit a kind of cinema ideal of the ideal soulmate. The director who most influenced me and almost everyone else is Alfred Hitchcock because 
he basically invented suspense for the cinema. And what is suspense as defined by Hitchcock is letting the audience in on what is likely about to happen before the characters in the scene know it's going to happen. So the audience becomes aware of things before the characters do, and therefore the audience is rooting for the characters often to survive this catastrophe. Vertigo originally, I, as I recall, was not successful. It was not very well understood by critics and audiences in its day. But it's the film on this list that has, I think, most increased in stature over the years as Hitchcock's films have become more and more appreciated, not only for um, the advances in technique and the invention of certain techniques, but for the complexity of their stories. Uh, Vertigo is one of the most complex of Hitchcock's uh, films. It's about uh, a lost love uh, and mistaken identity that may not be mistaken. Um, it's about someone who falls so in love with a character that after he knows she's dead, he believes her to be alive, which is impossible. But at the end of the film, it turns out that she was alive. It really is about how our emotions take over from our intellect and give us what we need to survive a tragedy. Also, it's one of the great mystery stories ever filmed. Who is this character played by Kim Novak that the James Stewart character keeps seeing long after she's dead and why? And the mystery doesn't get solved until the very end and then it's too late. So the mystery is solved but it's a tragedy nonetheless. I, I still watch Vertigo, I still think about it, it still reverberates in my mind's eye. To those of you out there who may want to go to film school or have a child that would like to go to film school, just watch the films of Alfred Hitchcock. That's all you need to know about how to make films. It's what I did. Personally, I do think that Vertigo may be Hitchcock's greatest work, and it resonates with me, despite a number of things that seem quaint and silly to some modern audiences approaching the film for the first time. There's the rear projection in scenes that take place in the car, some of the visual effects, especially when we see characters falling to their deaths. I also distinctly remember the laughter in the room at my film club, at the film's final moment, when a nun appears at the top of the bell tower to investigate the noise, only to startle Kim Novak into falling to her death. These things are, to me, a part of what the film is, and is an example of what I mean when I talk about viewing a film and judging it on its own terms, not superimposing your own metrics or standards over it. It certainly continues to beguile me and wash over me with its sense of mystery and deep psychological unease every time I rewatch it. Before we say goodbye to the world of Vertigo, let's take a quick look at the rest of 1958 in film. My favourite film of this year is Mon Oncle by Jacques Tati, a film that is largely responsible for my love of physical comedy and slapstick. Ingmar Bergman has a big year, releasing both Brink of Life and The Magician, and Orson Welles releases Touch of Evil. 
Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress is released, a film that would inadvertently and indirectly change cinema history forever, when George Lucas would later see it and begin working on a silly little science fiction western samurai mashup project that was doomed to fail, called Star Wars. At the 31st Academy Awards, Gigi wins Best Picture, one of the last classic musicals produced by MGM, directed by Vincent Minnelli, and is one of the highest grossing MGM musicals until 1974's That's Entertainment, a 50th anniversary celebration of MGM's musicals. Vincent Minnelli also wins Best Director for Gigi. Best Actor goes to David Niven for Separate Tables, and Best Actress goes to Susan Hayward for I Want to Live. Mon Oncle wins Best Foreign Language Film. Vertigo is largely snubbed at the Academy Awards, being nominated only for Best Sound and Best Art Direction. In October, Universal Studios sells their lot to MCA for over $11 million, before being acquired by MCA in full in December for another $11 million. In February of 1958, Harry Conn, who we ran into earlier in this story, the last remaining founder of Columbia Pictures and one of the last remaining Hollywood movie moguls, passes away. The five most financially successful films at the US box office in 1958 are Gigi, No Time for Sergeants, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Auntie Mame, and South Pacific. As always, please make sure to give this podcast a friendly review wherever you're catching it and share it with a friend. Again, we started charting in a number of different places around the world, but most excitingly here in my home country of Australia. Five-star written reviews on Apple Podcasts means so much more than you realise, so if you're able to do that and contribute to this podcast reaching more people, that would genuinely be amazing. If you want to get in touch with us and be a part of the show, you can either find us on socials or you can email us at bluerose.filmreview at gmail.com. If you don't already follow the show on Instagram, that's a great place to connect with me and a bunch of other people who just love films. My first short story collection, Where Lies the Strangling Fruit, is available to buy on paperback or Kindle on Amazon. I'll have the link for that down below. Thanks to producer Ritterman for our theme music, and thanks to Acast for hosting this podcast. That's all for now. I'll see you next week for another episode of the Blue Rose Film Podcast.